This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. All right, and welcome to another East TraumaCast. We uh, have a very special episode today, and we'd like to right off the bat acknowledge the support from Bio2 Medical. Uh, it provided a generous educational grant to help facilitate this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the Angel Catheter IVC filter device, and we have a couple of very experienced guests with this device to help discuss it today. First of all, uh, Dr. Bruce Crooks. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Crooks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your experience with the device and uh, how you came to be involved with it? So I was uh, fortunate enough to be involved in the uh, initial clinical trial um, that was a multi-center trial and um, uh, have had um, uh, experience placing the catheter, uh, and I function as a consultant for Bio2. Okay. And also joining us today is Dr. Ron Singh. Dr. Singh, would you mind introducing yourself and also telling us how you got involved with the catheter? Uh, hi. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think this is a really exciting uh, opportunity, and the topic is uh, very, very timely. Uh, my uh, clinical experience with the device is uh, extremely, extremely limited. Uh, that being said, I do have a uh, fairly extensive experience with both permanent and, and removable vena cava filters, and I think that experience uh, really gives me a great um, insight to, to some of the advantages and or even disadvantages of the, of the device. Uh, I have had the opportunity of getting my hands on it and using it in the laboratory. We actually had a, a recent Vinicaba filter hands-on workshop where we used a number of devices, including the Angel catheter, and uh, really had the opportunity of seeing uh, really the uh, fairly uh, simplistic uh, ability to use this device uh, in, uh, in our patient population and getting an idea of its, its real utility. Uh, and, and I think it really gets around some of the issues and concerns we have with uh, the more conventional uh, devices on the market right now. Okay, great. And uh, just as a word of uh, foreboding, I don't know if that's the right word for the audience, uh, this podcast is meant to be an introduction, and our hope is that in the next several weeks we will actually be putting on a live uh, interactive webinar, uh, as we have in the past, uh, to actually show the catheter show techniques and have more of a uh, question and answer kind of a kind of a environment for the uh, listening audience. So watch for that coming up in the near future. Um, let's go ahead, I guess, and just jump right in. Uh, first off, uh, Dr. Crooks, my question for you is, uh, can you talk a little bit about the clinical problem that we face that this catheter was designed to address? So one of, one of the challenges that we have, um, particularly in trauma patients, is the concept of a prophylactic IVC filter. And realize that all, all IVC filters, and Ron, you can jump in on this um, as, you, as, as you see fit, but all, prof, all filters are prophylactic. All they do is they prevent the progression, the progression or migration of clot up to the lungs and prevent PEs. The problem that we face in trauma frequently is that we tend to use 
retrievable IVC filters in a much more aggressive prophylactic kind of fashion, typically for patients where we think that they're at very high risk for, um, for pulmonary embolisms, but they reside or are in a space where we can't prophylactically anticoagulate them. And I'll give you an example um, from my own trauma center. We had a young man who suffered a gunshot wound to the liver um, and was managed operatively, operatively appropriate and appropriately, um, and he had a right femoral cordis placed at the time of his resuscitation. And on or about hospital day number eight, um, he kind of decompensated. They got a CAT scan of his liver and found he had a large biloma, but he also was uh, clearly had a free-throat-floating thrombus in his right iliac vein. And my, we, in my view, appropriately started him on therapeutic anticoagulation for his thrombus. Again, another five days later, he became ill. We did a repeat CAT scan, and on that CAT scan of his chest, he had multiple small pulmonary emboli, but he also had a loculated right pleural fusion that looked like an empyema. And as we scanned down through his pelvis, he still had a free-throating thrombus. So the debate we had is now we have a patient who I know I have to take off of his therapeutic anticoagulation who had PEs, and I had to take him to the operating room for a VATS. So the question then becomes, what do you do to prophylax him against a fatal PE? And I think in the old days what we would have said is, well, I need a filter to pr protect him while he's off of his anticoagulation just for a couple days. So the only answer we had then was to put in a retrievable IVC filter. And I think the angel catheter kind of fills that defect, that place where we're concerned that somebody's at a high risk for a VTE or PE, but we can't anticoagulate them for, can't anticoagulate them for a, a, a fixed period of time that's self-limited. And I think that's where this device kind of fits in. Yeah, yeah I think, uh, you know, to, to expand on that point, um, you know, we've been all been um, fairly fans of the Munikeva filters. Uh, that that notwithstanding, there's there's a fair amount of gaps and actually really strong data um, in, in the in the practice. Uh, that being said, uh, in our in our in our business, we see lots of these uh, venous thromboembolic events uh, and. Uh, uh, we do we do know that uh, vena cava filters do prevent uh, pulmonary emboli. So along with the um, difficulty and, and the controversies with the vena cava filters, has really been uh, what you can probably watch on TV tonight when you watch some some vena cava filter uh, malpractice commercial coming on. And, and I think that some of that is uh, uh, driven by some of the uh, uh, limitations we have with even retrievable devices, and, and that's the fact that uh, it's a it's a much more in detailed procedure to go after a, an implanted device uh, to retrieve it, and it's not uh, it's not infrequent that these patients are actually lost to follow up uh, or refuse to come back, and then that that device which is really no longer needed is now at risk for other potential complications, and. You know, that was the difficulty we had in the early vena cava filters because in the old Greenfield filter days, we were putting permanent vena cava filters in fairly young patients, you know, even 19, 20-year-olds, and they were going to live with this filter for the next 60 uh, or even 70 years or so. And, and obviously, there are potential long-term risks 
And even with 30-year data that you're looking at a, a handful of patients that ended up with uh, potentially post-phlebitic syndrome from chronic uh, cable uh, occlusion and thrombosis. Uh, but again, we're trying to, pre you know, the, the trade-off was we were hopefully saving a few people from dropping dead of an acute pulmonary embolism. Uh, so the, the retrievables, the volume of, of retrievable filters went up dramatically, the utilization, particularly in the trauma patients, because now we realize that we can actually get these devices out and, and protect the patient for their, their, in particular, their, really their high-risk period. When their risk goes away, we remove the device. And, you know, after probably you know, it's almost 15 years of experience right now, we've come to realize that uh, we haven't been really good about getting the devices out. So we're almost a significant number of these patients are, are just like the old days when they got the filter, they're going to live with it forever. Uh, so one of the attributes of the angel cath is it really, again, allows us to have uh, protection against uh, venous thromboembolic events in truly the high-risk period of time. And then the retrieval is it's almost a mandatory issue. Uh, and if there is clot left behind, then we can place a retrievable device for a more long-term implant and then remove the device we have. But by that point in time, we've already protected the patient and saved them from an embolus that would have otherwise uh, been a significant morbidity. Okay, so uh, fascinating concept, and I, uh, I'm, I'm just very interested because it seems like we have lots of these patients that fall into this category. Maybe before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about what the catheter is so people can kind of visualize it. How does it, how does it work? and maybe the key differences between the filters that we're all used to. Uh, Dr. Crooks, maybe you want to start first? Sure. So the, the catheter um, essentially looks like a nine-French triple lumen catheter. And when you take it out of the package, it's a, it appears just like a regular triple lumen, except it has a slightly larger hub on it. And what that hub is, is it's a, it essentially um, is an articulating hub that allows you to retract or pull back the uh, outer coating of the triple lumen catheter, which essentially deploys or unsheaths a, uh, a typical appearing IVC filter. Now, the trick here is that the IVC filter that's on the end of the catheter is permanently affixed to the end. So all you're doing is unsheathing it or opening up the, cath the uh, IVC filter such that it sits in the inferior vena cava. Now, the triple lumen catheter itself uh, has your standard three ports on it. Uh, one of the ports is a power injectable port so that you can use it for CAT scans or whatever you need. And it is also MRI compatible. Um, so it's essentially insertion of the catheter is fairly, fairly straightforward, and it's, typical, it's just like a regular femoral line uh, triple lumen catheter insertion for all intents and purposes. And, uh, Dr. Singh, can you um, talk about, I mean, do the patients have to lie flat while this thing is in place like they do, like with an angio sheath and things like that, or how does it affect the patient's mobility? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's unfortunate for the uh, listeners right now because I actually have one in my hands at this very moment that they can't <laughs> see this uh, because it's truly a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, this is a, a very uh, floppy, uh, malleable uh Exactly that triple lumen catheter. Uh, once it's in place, uh, it's as I said, it's, it's malleable. It'll conform yeah, even in a tortuous vena cava 
which we see not uh, that infrequently on patients. Uh, obviously, the filter is uh, it, the filter itself does not have barbs, uh, so there's very little um, uh, interaction with the cable wall, and sometimes the barbs themselves can be uh, concerned for being a, a potential thrombogenic source. Uh, it's it's a very malleable uh, filter itself. It'll obviously catch the clot. Uh, but its ability to move around. And, and, and then the vena cava, you know, sitting up, you, you, you really don't bend your cava that, uh, that to any significant amount, even with full flexion or rotation or side bending because you're basically stuck towards the back of the spine. Uh, but the device is, is uh, 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 very, very malleable and uh, forgiving in that situation. So your ability to move around is, is, is not a concern at all. The catheter, even the sheath itself, is, uh, is a very soft catheter. Uh, for that, um, and as I said, there's no, there are no barbs on the filter itself to engage the, the uh, side walls, so, so it's actually held in place by the catheter itself, so you don't have to worry about uh, movement displacing the filter either. Okay, um, and so Dr. Singh, as well, maybe keep going and tell us just briefly, how do you place one of these? Do you do it in the ICU? Do you have to go to an angio suite? Where do you, where does this actually happen? Well, um, uh, Bruce may have a little bit uh, more detail on this, on the specifics, but but as sure. far as your your placement of this, you know, uh, like anything, I think you want to, the, the the important thing is you want to ensure that the device is in the vena cava. Um, one of the differences of this device with other devices, that one real concern with the implantable devices is you really have to know what the cava size is. So you really want to make sure you don't have a very large cava that once you release the filter, it's too big for the filter, and now you have a, you're looking at a vena cava filter potentially in the right heart. Since the filter is actually tethered uh, or can, attached to the catheter itself, that's, that's not an issue. You, just want, you need to make sure that the filter is actually within the cave itself, uh, and that's the important thing, and, and, and that can be done with a simple post-imaging process. Uh, and, and in my opinion, probably doesn't even require a fluoroscopy for that. Uh, from that perspective, this makes this um, a very, very appropriate for bedside placement. And some of the difficulties you may consider with a, a bedside placement is that not all ICU beds are fluoroscopy capable. Uh, so that may be a potential problem if you have a patient on the bed. So, for example, in our ICU, the, the, the beds we use for the spinal cord injury patients uh, are not fluoroscopy capable, so we're not able to actually place a filter at the bedside in the intensive care unit. This device, however, because it's tethered and you never, you don't have to act, actually worry about it floating off anywhere and measuring the cable on the front end, you can place this and insert it and check your position with a plain film x-ray and, and uh, then you're, you're ready to go. So, so I think that, uh, again, uh, the simplicity of the device uh, really is one of its advantage, significant advantages. Right. So, so I, to be honest with you, the caveat that I use is I call it an IVC filter for morons in a lot of ways. It's it's incredibly it. it's perfect. incredibly it's easy perfect to place. for me. Yeah. <laughs> so we we put them in in our ICU, and what we do is um, um, under ultrasound guidance, we access uh, the right femoral vein um, just with a typical Sedlinger technique. The kit, uh, the catheter kit, comes with a, a typical guide wire. You float the guide wire up uh, just as you would if you were placing a femoral central line. It's a simple dilate. Di you dilate over the wire, take your dilator off, and then you slide the, the um, 
essentially the angel catheter, the entire triple lumen catheter over the guide wire into the into the cava. Now what we do then is we take a, a single shot plane film, a KUB, and what we look to see is there's a radiopaque marker on the tip of the catheter. And we like to see that sitting right between at the T12 L1 interspace. And if it's sitting at that space, then when you deploy the filter, it will deploy uh, right with the apex of the filter about mid-body of L1. Once we've confirmed that the filters, that the tip of the catheter is at T12 L1, then what we do is we deploy it. So we unlock the hub, pull it out to length. Typically what I like to do is I like to get another KUB then just for, just for my own um, edification, but just to look at it. And then you stitch, we pull out the guide wire, stitch the catheter into place like a regular central line, secure it at the skin, um, and then uh, place a regular sterile dressing on it. That's all you need for placement. So we do all of ours in the ICU. Typical insertion time should be a typical femoral line insertion time, you know, as long as your x-ray tech is there. It should take you about, you know, 15 minutes at the most. And so no contrast, no fluoroscopy in, in either of your practices, is that correct? No, no contrast, no fluoroscopy. Um, is there such thing as too big? Can you oversize this and end up, you know, in trouble? Well, I think there are a couple of advantages here. Uh, one, uh, the, the radial forces of the filter expanding are really not uh, dramatic at all. And, again, there are no hooks or prongs that can penetrate the vessel wall itself. So even if you uh, accidentally uh, inserted this thing into an ascending lumbar vein, uh, which I've seen a couple filters deployed there, and that's that requires another filter because you can you can almost never get them out by the time you've done that. Uh, but this it's it's just not going to cause any damage to a vessel, and if you're in the wrong place, you can back it up, reinsert your guide wire. Uh, and, and then avoid that. So, yeah, for example, using it, if you use the straight guide wire for some reason, you have the opportunity of going into relatively small vessels. So I think that that gives you a little bit of um, of uh, opportunity to even be a little bit off the mark uh, and not be in trouble, uh, which is a totally different situation with it with a with an actually deployed uh, implanted device. Uh, so I think that's that's again. Uh, another fairly distinct advantage of this, which again gives you the opportunity of not even having to use uh, fluoroscopy. Uh, the other issue is, in, in the vast majority of our patients, um, good or bad, uh, the vast majority of our patients typically have had an abdominal CT. So you can usually get an idea if there's uh, if there's a, the rarity of any sort of uh, IVC anomaly. But once the filter's open, you should be uh, you, you should be very comfortable with your position. So for my pediatric colleagues, uh, is there a minimum age that this has been used in? You know, we've had this uh, discussion in, in multiple situations. We we are much um, less aggressive uh, with uh, our, quote, prophylactic filters across the board. And, and prior to uh, the last few years, we were we have been remarkably less aggressive in the pediatric population. Obviously, if it's a... So if there's an active uh, acute VTE event, then, then we'll go ahead and place a filter. Um, but I think, again, some of the advantages of the device, uh, particularly in the fact it's very short-term and you know it's coming out, really uh, lends itself to an opportunity of 
uh, protection during a critical period, maybe a perioperative situation for a patient getting a significant uh, pelvic manipulation or whatever, and then remove so you don't have the long-term issues. As far as the age issue goes, for the, um, we have classically felt that uh, puberty and not an exact age has really been the difference, and, and, that, and the rationale for that is really when the when the hormonal changes begin to occur is when the inc the uh, increasing um, hypercoagula hypercoagulable situations after injury seem to become more prominent. So puberty is a is a is a significant uh, play for us. Obviously, uh, you know, really small vessels uh, you'd like to avoid uh, anything uh, flowing through there. But uh, you know, uh, the or early teenager, mid teenager, uh, we're we're fairly aggressive. Okay, uh, so Dr. Crooks, uh, tell us a little bit about how you select patients for the device, and, and maybe tell us as well how often are you using it in your practice? So um, we actually have developed a protocol for insertion of the device, and it, it actually, um, in my institution, we kind of had a perfect storm. I had a um, multidisciplinary team was assembled when we realized that across my institution, uh, we were not retrieving all of the filters that we were putting in, and um, which is a common a common issue for everybody across the country. And we sat down at the exact same time that I was sitting on this committee. Um, the angel catheter became FDA approved, and I was fortunate enough to get it on into my hospitals, into my ICU for for use for my group. And so what we did was we actually developed a um, a protocol. In my institution, hematology uh, wants to be involved in all the medical patients uh, in their decision-making for whether or not they deserve IVC filters. Um, we have agreed that uh, for, in particular, the trauma patients, that uh, traumas, trauma makes the decision about putting the filter in. So that's the first caveat. The, the ones that we have been um, putting under strong consideration is any, any trauma patient that we feel who is at a high risk for a PE, um, a spinal cord injury, for example, with uh, paraquadroparesis, who has to have an operation where we think the risk of a post-operative hemorrhage uh, secondary to prophylactic anticoagulation carries a significant risk. So, for example, a spine patient that's going to have an epidural hematoma where your surgeon won't let you anticoagulate him for three days. So that would be a patient in which we would put one in. Um, the other patient population that we're finding where it kind of works is any patient who has an acute venous thromboembolism who has to have their anticoagulation held uh, because of either an active, an active hemorrhage or the need for a surgical intervention, uh, in which time you have to hold their anticoagulation for a, what we would determine to be a significant period of time, uh, something like 24 to 72 hours. So a patient that's going to have uh, need a neurosurgical operation, have their pelvic fracture fixed, uh, anybody that's going to have to have a de uh, pleural decortication, for example, those people we would put one in. And then the last group that we would kind of consider, which is probably the interesting one, is the patient who has a known hypercoagulable state. So patient who has a history of factor V Leiden deficiency, for example, or who has uh, chronic anticoagulation with a known DVT who has to have an operation where we require that their anticoagulation gets held, uh, is someone else that we would think about putting one in for the perioperative period. 
So those are the patients that we're using them in. It's indicated for placement and prophylaxis for up to seven days. So it's really covering the short-term window where you can't anticoagulate to someone, at least in our hands. Dr. Singh, same in your hospital? Yeah, we are, we are very much in line. Um, probably, I think the East Coast tends to be a lot more aggressive in this area than um, the West Coast has been uh, from the very beginning of the consideration for filter, prophylactic filters in trauma patients. Uh, that being said, uh, I think that, you know, one of our uh, – the, the biggest push for us is the uh, inability or the felt to have a contraindication to even prophylactic anticoagulation, uh, which is uh, – which we're becoming much more aggressive on. Uh, but it's still uh, – it's still uh, – we're held for several days, which is really – remains to be a very – a high-risk period, you, you know. Uh, we did a study here one time. We looked at about 30,000, 40,000 patients between four level one trauma centers and identified that about uh, 25%, a quarter to a third of all the pulmonary emboli will occur within the first 72 hours. Uh, and that's the time where people are actually thinking about whether they need to uh, uh, consider if anticoagulant prophylaxis is appropriate or not. And even those patients who have appropriate prophylaxis still have breakthroughs. So, uh, you know, in the early period of time when you're still doing the ongoing resuscitation, uh, you're still having uh, hemorrhagic issues or hemorrhagic concerns, but there's always that VTE risk. Uh, I think that that's where the, the role of this device really fits in well, uh, again, because of the the uh, brief nature of it and your ability to get the anticoagulant prophylaxis on. Because in most most guidelines, historically, and even the EAST guidelines, which probably need to be revised after since 2002, was a consideration of a vena cava filter in high-risk patients at a 48-hour mark. And right around the 48, 72 hours, you're, you're already missing about 25% of your embolic events. So, again, this here's where, particularly in the acute traumas, where you have an opportunity of not only having a filter in place, but you have IV access at the same time. And that can be the same thing for a perioperative procedure. Again, you know, in a, in a case where a big operative uh, VATS procedure, which can be relatively uh, a bloody operation, uh, the reality is in 24, 48 hours, those patients stabilize pretty quickly and get put back on. Uh, their anticoagulant prophylaxis. So th th again, this this device really has a very a very unique and uh, focused uh, role, and I think in in what are otherwise pretty high risk patients. So would either of you advocate for? It seems to me in my practice where this may come in to play most commonly is the patient that comes in with a known head bleed, and then you have that typical tug of war with neurosurgery. When can we start chemoprophylaxis? And there's sort of this hemming and hawing and and um, there's that window. It's that 48 to 72-hour window that seems to be typical. And are you guys using them in that situation where you've got the patient who has that kind of a contraindication but is at risk? So for me, I, that that is a, a perfect window in which I would use it. Now, I haven't had that opportunity as of yet, but that to me makes, makes a lot of sense. And when I initially saw the device, um, that was the exact scenario that it kind of that the device was kind of screaming to me um, and saying, "Hey, this is where I would fit in." Um, the, it's that 48 to 72 hour window where you know the patient can't be anticoagulated, where they're at the highest risk um, for a VTE, 
that's where this fits right in, it, at least in in the way that I'm projecting that this will be used more frequently in my practice. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, like anything, I think at some point we're all, you know, th this is an opportunity, in particular because it's the, the only device with this um, niche uh, position and usage uh, that we really need to look at this uh, very hard, and I think this is an opportunity of a great a multi-center study, in, in which otherwise has been, need, has been needed for probably a good 25 years that I can recall. One of the questions that I have is, you know, with the, with the chest guidelines being pretty um, not in favor of prophylactic filters, I kind of wonder if some of those recommendations, though, are however, if they're based on the complications and the rate of non-retrieval, and if this would sort of address some of those downsides, and if, if that would maybe affect the recommendations for prophylactic prophylactic filters. Maybe. I, I think the, the, the guidelines, it's interesting, the guidelines between 2008 and 2012 are not that much difference. And the way it was worded in the 2008 version is not to use it as primary prophylaxis. So they sort of didn't actually say they were particularly against it. The, the, the 2012 is a bit more um, more straightforward with that. That being said, um, they don't really, they, they generically lump all trauma patients together. Uh, there's actually no specification of anything within trauma other than the word trauma. They don't separate out spinal cord injuries. They don't separate out uh, brain injuries. They don't separate out you know, they say, you know, when um, bleeding risk is a, is appropriate, then you should start anticoagulant prophylaxis. Well, you know, uh, the, the same trauma patient is not the same trauma patient for, uh, you know, uh, as far as their VTE risk. So I, I think there's a, a very broad stroke uh, generic uh, evaluation with that. What was interesting was at the same time the chest guidelines came out that were uh, pretty much against it, uh, the Spinal Cord Injury Consortium guidelines came out with almost a recommendation for, again, consideration. And they're, they're, um, cons they didn't exactly state when they thought you should place it, but their, their comment was consideration of a vena cava filter if anticoagulant prophylaxis was going to be delayed more than 72 hours. Uh, so here you have another um, fairly high-profile organization who's looking at a specific group of patients that has an, a counter uh, or a counter recommendation to what the chest guidelines actually are. So I think the guidelines uh, at some point can be somewhat uh, confusing as one says yes, the other says no, the other says maybe consider. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we have specific high-risk patients in front of us and uh, we sort of have to make some decisions along the way, and, and uh, hopefully within uh, a, a, at least some level of evidence-based uh, experience, uh, class uh, level two or level three, however you want to look at that, there, there, are, there are populations of patients that uh, will probably show at least some benefit. And again, yeah. to your point, I do believe that the complication issue uh, uh, should play into this, uh, and I think if you look at the again the history, vena cava filters and trauma patients to, actually across all disciplines took off when they became retrievable. That being said, more than half of them were never retrieved. Right.
And, you know, if you look at the chess guidelines, at the end of the article, one of the things that the authors um, say or indicate is they say, you know, one of the priorities for future research has to be a trial of retrievable IVC filters versus no IVC filter placement in the high-risk patients who can't be pharmacologically prophylaxed. So even they are acknowledging the gap in that literature. And in that statement alone, they're talking about our patients typically. The people who are at very high risk who can't be prophylaxed, essentially the guidelines are saying we really don't know what to do with them, in the, in the at least in chest. Now, what's interesting to me is, you know, since 2012 and now is this device has come, come out, which kind of fills that niche to, in, in a very interesting way with a 100% retrieval rate, which I find very intriguing and very interesting because it, it addresses a very specific problem that we as trauma providers face daily but is unique in the, in the world of medicine. The pulmonologists aren't really thinking about this, to put it simply. You know, the IR guys aren't thinking about this exact situation. We are because we're on the front lines of it. And we have to deal with the consequence of those decisions, be it holding prophylaxis, uh, pharmacologic prophylaxis, and having the patient have the VTE, or on the downside, starting them on the prophylaxis and dealing with the epidural hemorrhage or the expansion of the intracranial hemorrhage or recurrent pelvic fracture bleeding, you know. So you know, another, um, you know, from a quality metric uh, perspective, uh, I, I've been feeling for probably the last couple of years, and I think it's really uh, coming to fruition, that one of the metrics for vena cava filters is going to be your retrieval rate. Absolutely. That you're going to have to demonstrate a certain, you know, percentage of retrievals to, quote, justify your placing them. And as uh, Bruce just alluded to, we're looking at 100% retrieval rate at this device. And uh, Bruce, you said that in your you have a protocol for its use. Are you using VTE risk scoring to help help uh, decide which patients would benefit? We we do yes, but in in my experience thus far, uh, the the patients that we're putting them in are fa are fairly obvious to us. Um, you know, it's really it's break it down to the trauma the trauma population um that you can't you can't anticoagulate and you feel is at a high risk uh secondary to their their primary injury and the big ones there are spinal cord is one um you know pelvic fracture with multiple long bone fractures it's going to have to have their pelvis fixated uh and the severe uh TBI the patient with the bad TBI and the intracranial hemorrhage that you're going to have to hold their anticoagulation you know the other subpopulation or the other population we're look, that we've used this for is the patient with a VTE that we have to hold their anticoagulation for one reason or another. They need to go back to the operating room for some reason so that we can prophylaxis prophylax them during the period where surgically or postoperatively we feel like we can't anticoagulate the patient again. Yeah, I think this is. Um you know, a good phrase for this would be bridging therapy or bridging prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the other argument in the perioperative situation for the patient who does have an active uh, VTE, but which, which you have to stop your anticoagulation, is in reality it's actually the exact indication for a vena cava filter. You know, an active VTE with a contraindication to anticoagulation. Uh, albeit it's a relatively brief period of time, but you're still at risk during that time. And again, I think this gives, this lends itself to a pretty good 
uh, opportunity with the ability to take this thing out in three, four, five, six, seven days uh, with a 100% retrieval rate. Okay. Um, any Just real quick, any uh, hard and fast contraindications to placement? Well, uh, this is well, let me back up. All, as Bruce said earlier, all vena cava filters are truly prophylaxis. They don't treat uh, DVT. They don't treat PE. They just sort of hopefully catch the next one coming up the stream. Uh, that being said, if you have an active uh, uh, DVT with a pro, which, which you expect will be a prolonged contraindication in any coagulation, then I would just go to a removable device, an, an implanted device at that point in time. Yeah. Um, I would obviously want to not place this through an active DVT as well uh, uh, for that. Uh, other than that, I really can't see I really can't see much of an absolute contraindication to the device. No, it, the the caveat is it has to be placed through a femoral approach. It can't go through a jugular approach. So your femoral veins and your iliacs have to be at least on the side you're inserting it have to be th free from thrombus as does your inferior vena cava, because you can't push it through an active thrombus. Now, the other the other caveat to this is how you take it out. So on the day that you're going to retract it or take the filter out, you have to do a cavagram prior to removal, because what you want to do is make sure that the, that the, fil that the angel catheter is not full of clot. Because what you don't want to do is just pull it out and slide it out and have all of the thrombus that is prevented from progressing up to the, the pulmonary vasculature, just let loose as you retract the device. So removal has to be done in in, um, in either the operating room or an IR suite. You have to do a vena cavagram through the angel catheter prior to removal. And if you encounter clot within the device itself, then you have to make a decision about how you're going to manage that clot, be it putting a catheter above it, um, I'm, I'm sorry, putting a, um, a, a retrievable filter above it or uh, giving the patient some thrombolytics or managing it in some way that you can prevent that clot from embolizing distally. So that's the one caveat to the device that you have to be careful of is, A, it has to go in through the femorals, and, B, you also have to have a plan for how you're going to take it out. You touched on it a little bit. Um, maybe if we could highlight uh, some of the known complications and maybe use that as a springboard into talking about what sort of data are available in terms of outcomes and the use of this catheter. Um, maybe, Dr. Singh, do you want to take that one first? Well, I think Bruce has a bit – well, from the general filter uh, issues, I think some of the things that uh, we're trying to avoid with the retrievals in general are things such as uh, chronic cable occlusion, now, I, my argument has always been that if you occlude your cava within the first uh, week or so, you probably just saved yourself the patient because they probably trapped an otherwise uh, mortal event. Uh, I do believe that the long-term cava occlusions, the, the ones that occur over a year or so, are, prob are, are likely filter uh, a result of the filter and the inflammation caused by the struts in the side and the disturbances of flow. Um, Again, the reason why you don't want to leave the filter beyond when it's needed for that. Uh, some of the other issues that have occurred with filters have been uh, perforations that, that actually go through the cable wall. Uh, again, these are the hooks and the struts with the radial forces. 
I've got pictures of filters uh, with the struts sticking through the duodenum seen on endoscopy. I've got some sticking into the aorta and iliac artery um, uh, that have been. And those are actually not even really long-term devices. I've seen that occur within six months of a filter. So, uh, you know, most patients, the vast majority of patients uh, really don't need a filter for six months. Uh, again, once you can get them on at least prophylactic anticoagulation, they should be able to move forward with uh, uh, removing the, the, the device here. Um, the issue with the angel catheter, again, because there are no actual direct struts uh, poking into the sidewalls, uh, all those uh, concerns are, are really, uh, at least at this point in time, um, come to pass that they're not an, an issue, uh, which is probably the biggest uh, problem with that. The other issue with uh, the implantable vena cava filters is that they're all based on orientation. Uh, we always, uh, I mean, we've all placed a vena cava filter that's right down the middle of the cave and we go in to look at it, you know, a week later and it's kind of sitting a little bit sideways. And uh, once that occurs, uh, your filtration, your actual protection is dramatically decreased. And that's uh, one of, that was demonstrated by one of Bruce's former colleagues, Fred Rogers, when these guys were up in Vermont that if you have significant tilt of the filter, you're going to have decreased filtration. Um, unfortunately, some of the filters that actually give you a good orientation don't always give you the best filter, uh, have a higher thrombosis rate, i.e. the uh, op-piece and uh, trapeze filters. Uh, one of the advantages of, the again, the angel filter is it's tethered at the base. It's always down the middle. It's always straight, and uh, the flow is not going. No flow characteristics are going to make it flip sideways or not because you're really, it's it's uh, tethered right down the middle of the filter. So I think there are advantages to that aspect as well from filtration as well as the uh, the number of complications we see with implanted devices. Uh, Bruce, did you want to make any uh, any other well, insights about the angel? Yeah, so the you know the the one concern that you always have um is or the two concerns that that I have with um I shouldn't say two, actually three concerns. The the first one is you have a central line that's going through someone's femoral region. So you're always concerned that the patient is going to develop a clabsy off of that. Now in the in the multi-institutional study that we did um, we had 151 patients that were uh, treated in the, in the kind of the per-protocol final analysis, and we had a 0% CLABSI rate. And that's probably because the indwell time for the catheter is short. Now, bleeding events off the catheter were about um, uh, a little under 3%, 2.5% roughly. What was interesting to me in the study that we did is that we defined a PE-averted meaning that we had prophylaxed the patient successfully with the angel catheter, uh, that occurred in about 9.3% uh, of patients. So out of the 151 uh, patients that were treated on the per-protocol analysis, in 14 cases when, the, when we went to take out the angel catheter, over 25% of the filter was filled with clot. So you can say that we averted 14 PEs in that group. Now, the one downside is that realize you're taking a thrombogenic device and having it sit within the femoral vein itself. And the result of that is that roughly 20% um, uh, of the patients that we had them in were found to have um, uh, acute proximal uh, vein thrombosis or DVTs 
we attributed about 13% um, of those to uh, the catheter itself. So in about 13% of the patients that you're going to put them in, in this circumstance, you may cause a DVT, secondary to the catheter. And I think that's the one uh, downside of the device or the one thing that makes me a little bit nervous about using it is in those circumstances. Now, I think if you choose your patient population appropriately, you know, the patient where you have essentially no choice, you know, the one who's at a very high risk for having a VTE or who has had one and is on therapeutic anticoagulation and you have to stop it, you're preventing a life-threatening event from occurring in, um, you know, roughly 10% of the patients you're going to put it in. So to me, I think the trade-off is, is, uh, is worth it. Now, it I would I imagine it certainly merits some further study um but I think that uh, you know that's the one downside or the one thing that makes me concerned when I think about putting a thrombogenic device in in somebody's femoral veins just like just like any time we put a cordis in somebody for example yeah I agree with that at the same time there's a fair amount of cordis sitting in groins for a couple of days as well um, but here we have an opportunity of utilize, you know, almost double teaming the device's abilities. You know, one comment I wanted to, to uh, your comment about the filter trapping, which I thought was interesting. You know, the early retrievable venous cava filter data was kind of interesting because uh, the first four papers that came out, mostly uh, uh, with a specific device. Um, looked at uh, an automatic retrieval or repositioning at 14, 15 days. And what was interesting in those studies, which which changed after the implant durations expanded, were that up to about 25% of filters actually had trapped clot. So there's a, probably a fair amount of subclinical or questionably clinical uh, embolic issues that are occurring that uh, – Maybe that brief hypoxic episode was uh, maybe not a mucus plug. It may have been a small clot. Uh, again, kind of leans, leans you to thinking about uh, a, an early uh, device in that very uh, very early high-risk uh, uh, period uh, for that. Um, so uh, let me play uh, devil's advocate for a second and say, um, you know, I've got a good system working with my IR colleagues very responsive. They put these retrievable filters in, and maybe instead of using this catheter, maybe I say, um, maybe we just start retrieving these retrievable catheters during the index hospitalization and not waiting several weeks down the road. What would you say is the advantage of the angel catheter compared to that sort of a strategy? I, I think I think that that strategy is very, very viable uh, and certainly could be considered. I think, you know, the downside of that is um, um, the is the ease of removal of the original of the angel catheter is makes it very straightforward. You do your cavogram through the device. If there's nothing there, all you do is resheath the um, um, the angel catheter filter and slide it out. It's essentially like pulling out a triple lumen catheter. The other component or the other thing I would say is much easier and much more cost effective is the actual placement of the device itself. So I can put it in in 14 minutes, 15 minutes in my ICU with a single KUB with no contrast. So, you know, I don't need to reserve the IR suite for that. I don't need the interaction of my IR colleagues. Um, they don't need to submit a bill for that, and the patient doesn't have to travel anywhere. 
And if you think of the patients, most of the patients you're going to put this in are going to be your acute trauma patients that are relatively unstable who are sitting in your intensive care unit. I've saved them a road trip. I've saved them saved them a trip up to IR on a ventilator, and I've saved them a die load, particularly when their kidneys are at significant risk during their resuscitation. So to me, um, the ease of use or ease of placement of the angel catheter and the ease of retrieval plus the fact that I know that I'm going to retrieve 100% of them um, makes it a much more viable option to me for that short-term anti, uh, anti uh, or short-term prophylaxis versus a retrievable filter. And again, it sounds like from what I'm hearing, it, it, it's not probably the same patient that we're talking about anyway. You're not talking about taking taking away patients from the IR folks who want to place these filters and things like that. And in those types of patients, this is a different kind of like I, I like the term that uh, the doctor saying is the bridging prophylaxis. I think yeah, that makes I, a lot I think of sense. I, th I think the you know that term you know kind of bridging prophylaxis is is probably um, the best term for this. It, it it gives you a good idea of where this sits in the armamentarium for uh, VTE prevention. I think if you know realize that it's only indicated to stay in for seven days, so it has a limited kind of shelf life to it almost inherently and if you're going to need to prophylax somebody against a p e for a longer period of time, this is not the device that you want to use um and in that circumstance I you have uh references to papers that have been published that we can go and uh, we'll we'll put ref links up on our webpage to who so the, the primary study or the stu the study that we did, the multi-center trial, is actually in press. It's with the Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology right now. So um, it's not um, it's not out yet, but it should be out shortly. I'm waiting. Okay. All right. Well, I think uh, we've had a great conversation. I think the topic is very fascinating, and I think at least as I've been listening to the information provided. I, I'm imagining specific patients that are in my hospital right now that I could potentially use this on. Um, how do you go about instituting in your hospital? In, in, your, in your particular case, was it difficult to, to start doing it? Well, um, it, it, you know, it's as I said before, it actually came, um, it was made available to me uh, at an exact time where my hospital was doing an improved project on our rate of placement of, retrie of retrievable IVC filters and our rate of retrieval of the retrievable IVC filters. And I was asked to sit on a committee um, looking at this rate and trying to develop ways that we could get more of them out. So for me, it was a very easy discussion with my hospital group to say, hey, listen, I have a way where I can get out 100% of the filters that we're placing, and these are the specific patients that we're going to put it in. So I built the protocol um, for that and said, you know, we'll use it in this limited patient population, which happened to be the group that I take care of and put filters in primarily. And I had the advantage of saying, you know, the advantage here is that I'll take them all out. I guarantee you I'll get them all out. And I won't have to have patients coming to filter clinic or being on Coumadin, you know, being on Coumadin and having follow-up ultrasounds and a follow-up outpatient retrieval. Because as you know, a large portion of these patients don't come back and they don't get their filters removed. And then you're, you're dealing with that. Those patients are dealing with it for the rest of their lives. So for me, the timing of the catheter's approval and the time that it came, um, was presented to me and to our hospital was very fortuitous. And it fit right in with this other global.
Yeah, you know, it's a challenge, though. I mean, we've all had, we've all seen it. You know, those patients that come back to your clinic and they say, hey, listen, I had an IVC filter placed eight years ago. You know, can you take it out now? I'm interested in it. Or you have a patient in my, you know, that'll come back to my clinic and say, oh, I know I've got one in, but I'm not going to bother getting it out. Or even worse, right. you know, I'd like to have my filter removed, but to be honest with you, I can't afford the, I can't afford the procedure. What do I do? And that becomes, you know, to me is the biggest tragedy. We put these in for very good reasons. We put in the retrievable filters for clear indications. And to save these patients from a fatal PE, the challenge is that decision may have to impact the patient for the rest of their lives, even when they're not under that threat. And that has always been a disconcerting part of putting in a retrievable filter to me is you put it in, you finish the case, and you say, geez, I hope this patient's going to come back to get it out. Um, and sometimes, despite your best efforts to do that, you just can't get them back. And that, that's a little bit of a challenge, I think. Right, right. Okay. Well, I think we're about up on time. I wanted to uh, let everyone know who's listening that you can go to the Bio2 Medical webpage. They have some great uh, animations showing the device, showing it being placed and being deployed. Um, if you just kind of want to get a sense of what this thing looks like and how how it's uh, how it is used, um, Dr. Crooks, any last minute pearls or any concluding statements you'd like to make? I think you know, like any intervention, it, they it always devices and and operations and procedures all have risks and benefits, and I think um, you have to weigh the unique risks and benefits of the placement of, of this catheter. Uh, within the context of the patient that you're dealing with. And I think it does, in my opinion, this has a place, just as Dr. Singh said, as a bridging um, prophylaxis for patients. And I, and I think uh, as we use it more and get more used to the concept of this kind of new weapon in our armamentarium against PEs, I think it will. It, the catheter itself is going to find a very clearly defined uh, niche for us Within our uh, regiment, so I'm very interested to see how this how this uh, pans out in the long run. So you know, just just a you know a final comment for me. I, I, I think this is a a very unique device. Um, I think it has a very uh, applicable um, niche for what we do on a on a um, not infrequent basis. Um, particularly in the perioperative uh, issues, if you don't want to be, if you even stay away from the purely prophylactic issues, the perioperative discontinuation of anticoagulation in patients undergoing uh, a major operation, um, pelvic fractures, VATs, et cetera, um, uh, this would be something that I would even consider. I'm considering for some of my uh, total joint uh, uh, colleagues, uh, typically I get these uh, may be considered off-label, but I explain that to the patients as well, that it's an off-label. But these are the patients who have had a pulmonary embolism in the past. And you, any patient who's had a pulmonary embolism in the past is asking you for the filter. Uh, you don't really have to talk to them too much about it. But uh, uh, what I've been getting, I get a, several times a year of the patients who uh, the, the total joint surgeon calls me up and says, listen, I'm doing Mrs. Smith uh, in uh, a week or so for her left knee. And uh, three years ago, I did her right knee, and she had a PE on post-op day two. Uh, we'd really like to have a filter uh, for this uh, procedure. 
Uh, and then when she's back off, we get a, you know, she's recovered from a surgery within two to three days to start on a therapeutic anticoagulation, and we can go out within the filters gone. So that really simplifies the management in those particular cases as well. So I think this is an exciting device. Uh, we, uh, we're going to have to obviously track, uh, some of the experience with it, uh, but uh, in all intents and purposes right now, I think it has a very uh, unique and useful uh, niche in our business. Yeah, sounds like a very exciting device and uh, sounds like some really good research opportunities, too, for people who are interested. Yes. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us. It's been a pleasure and uh, really, I think, shared a lot of important information on, on, a, on a great device here. So thanks for your time and for your wisdom. The pleasure is absolutely mine, and thanks for having me. And, uh, again, we'd like to thank Dr. Singh as well. Thanks, guys. And once more, we'd like to acknowledge the generous support uh, from Bio2 Medical in making this podcast possible. Thank you very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.